Welcome to Windsor Christian Fellowship Church Podcast. Our church vision is to win generations to Christ, connect them to His master plan, empower them to succeed and grow the kingdom of God. For other podcast resources or more information about Windsor Christian Fellowship, please visit us at www.wcf.ca. Good morning, Windsor Christian Fellowship. It's good to see your smiling faces. So I love that passage that Drew and Kimberly read for us at the beginning. And uh, the other day I actually saw a meme about it, right, right from that Luke 2, 7. And uh, the, uh, the picture was they're standing in front of like the manger scene and Mary's on the donkey and very pregnant and Joseph is trying to explain to her, I didn't mean to not make a reservation and the caption said, the first silent night. (laughs) I had a good laugh. And then, you know, you know how everybody's brain processes information differently? You know what I'm talking about? People, people take in information at different, different streams and different ways based on age, education, demographic, what they're paying attention to or not paying attention to. And uh, I bumped in some of the youth, and I don't know how we got on the topic, but we were talking about the wise men. So, of course, um, I went into this explanation about, you guys know, like, there was probably a whole caravan of them, and that's why Jerusalem was so troubled, and they traveled with military troops, and and the Romans were probably afraid because those, anyway, and I was explaining all this to them, and uh, I stopped, and I saw the look on their faces, and I was like, yeah, a little bit too much, and they were like, no, no, this is good. I'm like, no, (laughs) I'll leave you guys alone, because sometimes what we do is, it's perspective. It's the way that we communicate with other people, So um, today, we are going to continue the Jesus series, and we've we've learned about how Matthew wrote primarily to the Jews, and he presented Jesus as the, the king of the Jews, Jesus the Messiah, and then we looked at Mark, and Jesus was the servant, and Mark was written more to the Roman people of the day, and the gospel we're looking at today is the gospel of Luke. And uh, this one was written to the Greeks, right? And the Greeks were the philosophers, the thinkers, the, uh, and, and Luke presents Jesus as the divine man, or a lot of people say he's presented as the son of man. And then next week, we'll get to the book of John, the gospel of John, that talks about how Jesus is presented to all of the Christ followers. Now, in Luke 2, which was just read at the beginning, Uh, If you read the rest of the chapter, you see the account of the life of Jesus up until about age 12. And, you know, for the most part, the life of Jesus was pretty uneventful up until he started his public ministry. Okay, maybe not. I mean, how many of you had angels at your birth announcing to the world that you were born? And then shepherds came in from the fields, and then wise men came a little while later, and I mean, it was pretty eventful. And then at age 12, he's in the the temple, he's sitting with the religious teachers and leaders, and he's having a conversation, and not just a conversation, intelligent conversation, and it says in verse 47, um, all who were present were amazed at his understanding and his answers. 
So this is a little bit of insight, a snapsight into uh, the life of Jesus as a child. And uh, Luke, um, who recorded this one that we're talking about today, was a physician. He was a doctor. And he also wrote the book of Acts, so kind of like part one, part two, when he was telling the story. And he was writing to a, a Greek guy that we, we know as Theopolis, is how he addresses the gospel to. But I want you to understand, Luke actually created more New Testament content than the Apostle Paul. How many of you knew that? Luke has 37,932 words. Paul 32,408 words. (laughs) So Luke actually created more content. I mean, we know Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, but nonetheless, he was a physician who diligently researched and recorded the things that he researched. So I wanted to start with this. Um, Paul, uh, Paul. Okay, drink more peppermint tea. Luke records in chapter one, I'm gonna read two accounts here and, and At the beginning of the book of Luke, there was the angel Gabriel came and visited two people. He visited Zechariah and he visited Mary. But the outcome of those meetings were very different, but very similar. But I want to show you the contrast here. In Luke 1.11, while Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the incense altar. Now, how many of you have been at work? And you looked over to the right, and all of a sudden there was an angel from the presence of God standing there. No? Okay. Zachariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him, as you would be too if you really saw an angel from the presence of God. Okay. But the angel said, don't be afraid, Zachariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife, Elizabeth, will give you a son, and you are to name him John. That's pretty specific. You're going to have a boy, and it's going to be named John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. He must never touch wine or alcoholic drinks. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. And he will turn many Israelites to the Lord their God. He will be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. Zechariah said to the angel, now Zechariah is going to ask a question. How can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man, and now my wife is also well along in years. So you know that after a while, um, having babies is not as easy as it used to be. When you get a little bit older, and there comes a point where you can't do that anymore. Is anyone awake? (laughs) Then the angel said, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you will be silent and unable to speak until the child is born, for my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. So you see the angel appears to Zechariah while he's doing his priestly duties. He gives him a message. Hey, you're going to have a son. You're going to call him John. Zechariah asks a question. And at the end of that, Zechariah can't talk. Luke 1, 26 to 38. Jump down a little bit. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel, this is the same Elizabeth that we just talked about, Zachariah's wife, okay? Six months later, the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. 
Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Again, confused and disturbed. When angels show up <laughs> and greet you, Mary was trying to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary. Why is it when angels show up in the Bible, one of the first things out of their mouth is, don't be afraid? People, oh, I saw an angel. I'm like, did you? Because <laughs> usually when angels show up from the presence of God, it gets your attention. For you have found favor with God, you will conceive and give birth to a son. Boy, same message this time, and you will name him Jesus. God was very specific here. You will name him John. You will name him Jesus. Uh, he will be very great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, but how can this happen? I'm a virgin. Now, Mary's asking the angel a question. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. Mary responded, I'm the Lord's servant. May everything you've said about me come true. And then the angel left her. Now, why is it angel appears to Zechariah? gives him the news about his son, tells him to name him John. Zachariah asks a question. Zachariah is silent until the baby's born. And Mary, the angel of Gabriel appears to Mary, says, you're going to have a son. You're going to name him Jesus. She asks a question, and the angel goes about his business. Has anyone ever wondered about that contrast? Has anyone ever wondered, hey, well, why does Mary get... So... I'm going to suggest to you that in the text, there's some clues that we can look at. Zechariah, who is a priest, had been praying for his wife to have a child. The angel announces, announces, can everyone say, your prayers have been answered. Okay. Then he says, I'm here to tell you about it down to the smallest detail of what his son's name is to be. Now, Luke and his co-workers, because he was a physician, they didn't have ultrasound technology like we do today. They would have no way to know whether it's a male or a female child in the womb, okay? Um, <clears throat> Zachariah, at this point, asks for a sign. Give me proof that this is gonna happen. Now, I don't know about you, but if an angel from the presence of God appears to me and terrifies me, tells me, don't be afraid. Then he announces, your prayers have been answered. Very specific prayers that not everyone would know that he was necessarily praying. They might assume. And then gives them very specific details about how it's going to happen. I don't know about you, but I'm thinking that that angel is a good enough sign. For, I'm good. I'm good at the angel from the presence of God appearing before me and announcing to me that my wife is going to have a child. Let me say, okay. Zachariah wanted proof, so Gabriel gave him proof. You won't be able to speak until the baby's born. Be careful what you ask for. <laughs> I can see God and Gabriel talking later, and, and God says, Gabriel, why, why'd you make him be quiet? And he, oh, God, he was rambling on about he wanted another sign as if I wasn't a good enough sign for him and your word wasn't truth, and so I just said silence. <laughs> and he didn't get to speak until he named him John. <laughs> Anyway, it reminds me of Isaiah 7, 14. All right, then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she will give birth to a son, 
and we'll call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So now we go to Mary, a young unmarried girl who's engaged to a man named Joseph. She meets the same angel six months later, and she's also confused. She's a little disturbed by the angel's appearance and greeting. And she, he tells her she's going to give birth to the Savior of the world. Now, that's, that's a lot to take in one conversation. I'm not going to lie. I mean, how many ladies, when you were single and didn't know a man, and an angel appears to you and says, you're going to give birth to the Savior of the world? That would be a lot. And then he goes on to say, oh, by the way, your relative Elizabeth, you know, the one formerly known as Baron. Uh, apparently, Mary wasn't following Elizabeth's Instagram feed, and she missed the uh, big reveal about whether Elizabeth was going to have a boy or a girl when they popped the balloon. You know, they, she missed that. Your, cousin, or your relative Elizabeth is going to give birth soon. For me, it seems that Mary had agreed in faith already with the angel's word. And she was a little confused on the how. It wasn't that she was questioning the angel. She was like, okay, can you, can you explain to me how this is gonna happen? Because I haven't been with a man, so how am I gonna have a child? Look, Gabriel, I'm sure you know how this works, and I know how this works, but like... So the angel had to explain what was gonna happen, and then she said, yeah, let it be, okay. Zachariah wanted a sign and got one, Mary was seeking clarity and got it. You see the difference in the approach? Anyway, let's move on. That was kind of fun. Luke uses the term the son of man 25 times in his gospel. And um, it's used about 80 times in the Bible, mostly in the four gospels. But you'll see that theologians have been fighting about the definition of the son of man probably since the time that Jesus used it. <laughs> When he first spoke the word, the son of man, because he uses a lot referring to himself. Um, but I will say this, and, and despite what your theological preference is on what it means, it is absolutely used by Jesus in the context of Daniel chapter 7 as a messianic term. Okay? In Daniel seven thirteen, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over the nations of the world so the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal and it will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So interesting, there's this messianic language that gets tied into the gospel of Luke when we're talking about Jesus as the son of man. Now, Matthew, when you look at his genealogy or his lineage, he links Jesus to be a son of David so that Jesus the Messiah can take the ancestral throne of David and become the king, okay? And you trace, Luke actually puts the lineage in chapter three, which is kind of weird because you'd think he'd put it at his birth, but he moves it. And in Luke talks about the lineage of Christ all the way back to Adam, okay? And not only does he go to Adam, he ultimately connects Jesus to being a son of God or the most high. So now we have Christ, the divine man, who is the second Adam. And, and I'll read it for you in 1 Corinthians. Um, I think first service let me know that time allows. But if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15, verse 45, it says, the scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person, first Adam. But the last Adam, that's Jesus, is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. 
And he goes on and he talks about what comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body. Adam, the first man, was made from dust, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, heavenly people like the heavenly man, just as we are earthly man will be like the heavenly man. Okay? He goes on and he talks about eternity. He talks about concepts of life and death. But see, what we gotta understand is Jesus, the second Adam, really, I'm going off script here. When Jesus was here and he lived among us, he wasn't born through the seed of man. It's really important that we understand this. That's why the virgin birth is so important. Adam, when he was created, was not given this, as theologians call it, propensity to sin. He had free will, he had a choice, but it wasn't tainted. And Adam and Eve yielded to the temptation and they partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the fall happened. Sin entered into the human race, their conscience was awakened and humans had the ability to discern between right and wrong at this point. Cost them a lot, but... Nonetheless, they gained it. Later, Christ came. But every human that ever was, except for Christ and Adam at the beginning, came through the seed of man, right? So men sow a seed. People are, people are created. And, and that fallen seed creates a propensity to sin, which means every one of you will break the Ten Commandments at some point in your life simplest term. Every one of you will break one of God's law. You will be a fallen sinner and you will need a savior. Christ was not born through the seed of man. He didn't have that propensity to sin. And he, like Adam, faced temptation, but he chose to honor God's word and overcome. And because he did that, he was then qualified to be the spotless lamb of God, to be the sacrifice on the, on the cross. That's good theology. Now, Luke then goes on and he starts highlighting the ministry and the teachings of Jesus, especially his parables, okay? From Jesus, when the Spirit led him out in the wilderness and he faced the temptation of Satan through the healing of the sick people, delivering the possessed people, assigning his followers to proclaim the kingdom of God, um, the gospel. Jesus actually missionally, when he was here, starting in about Luke 4, he started dismantling the kingdom of darkness, he went out in the spirit, he faced temptation, he conquered, he started dismantling Satan's rule and reign of terror over the hearts and minds of mankind. And then when he went and started healing sick people and freeing those who were oppressed and delivering those who were possessed, and he started raising the dead and he started controlling even the elements, the wind and the rain had to obey. See, Jesus started dismantling hell's work here on planet earth and the kingdom of darkness began to weaken and the rule of light was being established, the kingdom of God that we talked about a couple weeks ago in Matthew. And one of the other things that we notice in the book of Luke is it seems that Jesus and the religious leaders were constantly at odds with one another. <laughs> and they were always trying to accuse him of things. They were trying to trap him. They were trying to, because, I, I mean, at some point they had to be jealous because he had all these followers and the power of God was present and miracles and signs and wonders. But every time they attacked him, um, they, his, their arguments were dismantled and, and shamed, actually. And let's see. Um, 
just trying to think out my order here. Let's go through Luke 20. Okay, Luke 20 is a great account of this. The religious teachers and leaders of the day come to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gives you the right to heal the sick, to cast out devils, to raise the dead, to set people free? In Jesus, in true Jesus fashion, answers their question with a question. Hey, guys, I'll tell you what. I will tell you by what authority I do this if you can answer this one question for me. John's baptism. <laughs> Was it from God or not? You know, like, and, and they realized what they did after they did it. Oops, shouldn't have asked them that question because now they've got a dilemma because if they said that John's baptism was from God, if it was from heaven, then Jesus would look at them and say, well, why didn't you submit to it? And if they said it wasn't, then the people would have killed him because the people looked to John as a prophet and he created a little bit of a dilemma for them. So their only safe answer was, we don't know. <laughs> they knew. They couldn't say what they knew because they were gonna die. Um, so <laughs> they said, we don't know. And then Jesus said, then I'm not gonna tell you. And then he tells a parable about some wicked farmers. And then, he go then they try to trap him again and they talk about, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus sidesteps their trap and says, actually, show me a coin whose picture's on it, Caesar. Okay, we'll give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God's what's God's. Okay. Also in Luke, when he's addressing the religious leaders, and, and, and he says to them, you know, you guys... You're so religious, you follow all these rules and regulations down to you tithe off the herbs in your garden, your mint and your, you know, oregano. You, you tithe off of the herbs in your garden, but you overlook justice and mercy and compassion and love. Like, you don't do the, the things that are required by the law. The whole purpose of the law is not this, it's this. And you do these things, but you overlook these things, the whole purpose of it. But he makes a crazy statement. He says, you should pay tithes. I have people, oh, it's not a New Testament. Jesus said it, you should do it. That puts it in the New Testament and that makes it for us today, just saying. But see, the point of that is not, the tithe is just the beginning. God has your heart, so you give him but everything you have is his. That's why as Christians, hey, we're doing four weeks of giving right now in WCF, you're doing great. First week, we signed up all the people we needed to volunteer downtown. We got all the food paid for. We took care of everything budgetary-wise for the first week of giving, first week. Week two, we had adopted out all these families for uh, safe families. Um, all those got taken. Most of them have come back. I think most of them should be in today. We had some families in-house we wanted to bless. You can donate to that today because we want to make sure that we take care of the people here that are struggling right now that we knew about. And then next week, we'll celebrate for Africa and we'll send some money to feed kids overseas. But we've been doing great. We're generous. But the truth is we as Christians should live a generous life every day, not just when we put the four weeks of giving shirts on and do a little campaign at the church to focus our giving going into Christmas. This is how Christians live. And Luke 
above all, oh, so Luke 20, right? He addresses them on, on money, okay? Give to Caesar what Caesar's, give to God what's God. And then, and then they have this, this other argument with him about the resurrection. And this is, this is, you know, when people get into those stupid philosophical questions, right? Like who's the best hockey team ever? How many angels can stand on the head of a pin? Who cares? How does it change your eternity, you know? I mean, hey, the World Cup's going on right now. What do they say? Go France! Some of you aren't cheering for France. Are you not cheering for France, Rolly? Are you cheering for France? <laughs> Argentina? <laughs> I asked them to do that, don't worry. <laughs> Whether you're going for Croatia, who upset Brazil, Argentina, France, Morocco, soccer. But I'll tell you something. Any team that's going to play at a high level has learned to function together as a team. The body of Christ has to learn to function together as the body of Christ. And I believe in our church and in many others right now, God is activating people in their specific gift, their specific function, and their specific role. And we, his people are learning how to navigate through this life together, and it all ties together on my next point, okay? It all ties together on my next point. And Luke did a really good job of pointing this out because he paid special attention to the work of the Holy Spirit, okay? When Jesus was conceived by Mary through the power of the Holy Spirit in Luke 135, the Holy Spirit was present through his birth conception. In Luke 2, 22 to 40, you see that the Holy Spirit was present in the activities surrounding that part of his birth. In Luke 3, 21, where he was baptized, right? And in Luke 4, 1, when he started, the Spirit led him out in the wilderness to be tempted. Through 18 to 21, through his ministry, even at his death in Luke 23, 32, and his resurrection that you see a little bit, the Holy Spirit was active in the life of Christ. Jesus Listen to the Spirit of God that was within him, okay? And, and theologians debate on this stuff, but Jesus was 100% human and 100% divine. But we know that he had to set aside some of his divine attributes while he was here on earth and choose not to access them. And, and for me, the best way I can give you a picture of it is he lived as a man filled with the Holy Spirit and he obeyed what the Spirit of God directed him to do, just like you and I are supposed to live today. We live spirit-led lives. And, and denominations fight about this. Churches fight about this. It's super simple when you look at it. There's a lot of confusion about the difference between the indwelling and the infilling. Well, I got filled with the Spirit when I got born again. Well, you got indwelt. The Spirit came to dwell inside you. But in the book of Acts, 
Jesus even at the, at the end, what does Jesus say in Luke 24? He opened their minds to the scriptures and he said it was written long ago that Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. It was written that the message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name for all nations beginning in Jerusalem. There's forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You're witnesses of all these things, but catch this verse 49. And now I will send the Holy Spirit just as my father promised, but stay here in the city until Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. You've already got salvation. There's forgiveness of sins for all who repent. They were saved. They were dwelt with the presence of God. But he said, the Holy Spirit's gonna come and fill you with power from heaven. Okay? So people confuse the indwelling with the infilling and they think that when they got indwelt, they got infilled. But they're missing out on a portion of this. People fight about, I'm not gonna fight with people. I don't care. Not worth my time to argue. But, but here's the thing. Jesus listened to the direction, the guidance, and the leading of the Spirit, and he operated in the power of God, and he did that better than all of us ever will. He listened more perfectly than all of us ever will, and, and that's why he's walking down the street, and there's a blind guy, and he spits in the earth and makes some clay, and boom, the guy gets healed. That's why he walks up to dead people and says, come alive, and they come back to life. That's why when he's going around and someone filled with the demonic and he says, come out, and they, they leave. Now, we, as his followers, can take the kingdom of God and bring it to others. And over the years, we see these kind of things happen. I've seen some pretty crazy things in my day. I've seen some healings. I've seen some miracles. I've even seen some resurrections in my day. Okay, you may not see that in your day-to-day, but I mean, Jesus aside, you know, I don't know anyone that every day, every day is a miracle, but every day, you know, they're going out and raising the dead and, you know, blind eyes are being, but these things happen. They happen today. They've happened throughout history because the power of God is still relevant, but it's us learning to listen to what the spirit tells us to do. And, and when I... Let me tell you a couple stories about this. When I was, uh, I'll just go back to Dallas, it's easy. I'm in Dallas, Texas OU weekend, 50,000 college students in the bar district, it's called Deep Ellum. We go down there, we share faith with people. And all the other religions were down there too. And, and I remember, I remember very specifically because I was talking to some people and I kind of got interrupted because these guys, they were, um, practicing a religion called Hare Krishna. They had their togas on and their tambourines and they were doing this little dance. And it was cute. And I went to talk to him after and I said, tell me about what you believe. And this guy pointed to this guy who directed me to this guy who directed me to eventually the leader. And I'm talking to the leader of this group and I, very vividly, he's going on about what they believe and I'm kind of listening. But the Holy Spirit said, look down. And I'm like, okay, but I'm talking to someone. I like to look in their eyes when I talk to them. To the point I make people uncomfortable because I like to look in their eyes when I'm talking to them. <laughs> but I looked down. And immediately I realized what the Holy Spirit was telling me because as out of his mouth he was talking about we don't believe in killing animals, blah, blah, blah. He was wearing leather shoes. And I said, excuse me, I hate to interrupt you while you're sharing, but I have a question for you. 
Can I ask why you're wearing leather shoes? And he said, you got me. And I said, excuse me? He said, you got me. And I'm like, what do you mean I got you? You're trying to convert me over to what you believe and, and you, you, you're not even consistent with what you're telling me. Your lifestyle, like, they have synthetic leather shoes. They don't cost that much more than real. Long story short, he was in a little church. Their governance model, questionable, but nonetheless, um, when the con- some churches, the congregation gets a vote on who gets to stand up and be the pastor. We have a membership that takes care of that, a, small, a smaller group. But, but what happens is, um, in those churches, if a group of people come in that don't like what you're preaching week in, week out, they vote you out. And then you're fired and you're on the street. So this guy, they didn't like what he was preaching, so they voted him out. So he ended up fired. And anyway, he lost his house, he lost his wife, he lost, anyway, his life fell apart. So he went into a false religion. So I prayed with him and tried to direct him back to Christ and got him into a church. And he was actually in the Houston area at that time. So I, I connected him with a good church there. See, you gotta listen to the Holy Spirit though. I remember walked across the street and down the block and I was talking to another guy who was an intellectual. He was very well read. He could quote your, you know, all of your Henry Thoreau and your, Plato and your Socrates, all the philosophers of the day and stuff. And remember, as I was talking to him, the Spirit of God just said, quote Sir Robert Frost. And I was like, okay, because I'm, you know, I was probably more well-read when I was younger and in that academic environment than I am now. But I just looked at him and said, listen, for me, I'll quote Sir Robert Frost. I won't even go to the Bible. I said, Two roads diverged in the wood and I, I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. And it opened up for me to share faith with him about how Christianity is the the road less traveled by. And it broke down the intellectual barrier and then the word of God started coming alive. But see, it was listening to the spirit within that opened the door for me to be able to connect with people. And in your life, you'll find there's times the spirit tells you to speak and there's times he tells you not to. Okay, and you have to learn to listen and you have to learn to engage. And, and while I'm here, it's funny because people come to church building, as Marnie was talking about earlier, you know, this is really the four walls, this is the building, it's not the church. The church is you and I, we are the church. Amen. Everywhere you go, you carry the presence of God. Amen. You bring him with you. You are the church. It's a living organism here in the earth. It's not cold shell walls. But when you come together as the local body of believers, when we're together, what was I gonna say? <laughs> I love that. Your brain jumps. I told you my brain jumps sometimes. But um, when we come together as a local body of believers here at the church, gone. Wow. What's that? No, but that's not what I was going to focus on. This is unbelievable. I love doing this. Thank God I'm not streaming right now. (laughs) I'm sorry. Uh, Oh, the spirit is speaking to all of us. 
and we're learning to flow and operate together so that we can take the message of hope outside of these four walls. But while you're here and I'm sharing, people say, oh, I didn't get anything out of your message today. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. And, and here's the truth, though, okay? My wife is a good cook. I'm a decent cook, okay? Like, in other words, the kids eat edible food the vast majority of the time. <laughs> My wife makes really good food. I just, I'm just saying, like, so, so what happens is, in my married life, 22 years, twice I've made something. My wife looked at me and said, please don't make that again. Okay. And we just determined that right at the get-go, at the beginning, that we were going to be honest and upfront with one another about things like that. And if I don't like the food, then I'm going to tell her that rather than have her think I like it and make it 400 times. I made some fish dish, pollock, whatever. It didn't come out good. And I tried this apple cinnamon chicken that was also a fail. <laughs> Other than that, pretty well everything I've made is edible and doable. Okay. But my point is this. Okay. My point is this. Sermons are kind of the same way. I'm going to deliver a message every time you come, and sometimes it's going to hit your taste buds, and sometimes... You're not there and it's not going to connect with you. But if you don't eat every day and feed yourself on the word of God, you're going to be starving by the time you walk into this place on a Sunday morning to get a 25-minute or 30-minute message. Okay. We have to do better than this. Because if you can't even feed yourself in the basic things, if you can't even pray on a regular basis... How are you ever going to hear the voice of God to go and affect a culture? To go and bring hope to the hopeless and bring the power of God to those that really need to see the power of God demonstrated in their life. So when we're here together, yes, it's good. There's, there's community, there's encouragement, there's fellowship. These things happen. There's relationship that happens within the local assembly. But daily, you have a responsibility before Christ as a Christ follower to spend some time in his word to learn what he tells you, how he tells you to live. You have a responsibility to spend some time connecting with him in prayer and developing your relationship. And then as you go through life, you listen. And as you're listening and tuning your ear to what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do, it's gonna change the way that you live and it'll change the lives of those around you. Because that is the heartbeat of the spirit-led life. And Luke captured that so well. Stand, stand up with me. Fathers, we have the bread in our hand. You know, your body was broken for people just like myself and those that are here with me today. But Lord, your brokenness made a way for me to be whole and I thank you that your healing power is being released through this place right now. That health is being restored in the bodies. Lord, I thank you that we have the mind of Christ and that you also were broken for our minds to be restored to wholeness. Heal your people today. 
restore your people today to health, to the fullness of life. And Father, I thank you that our hearts are continually tuned to your word, both written and spoken. And you're causing us to live a holy life as you've called us to your people together in unity and oneness in Jesus' name. And Lord, the blood of the new covenant, the cup, your blood was spilled for our sins. The gospel would be powerless without the blood of Jesus. There would be no forgiveness. So Lord, as we stand at the table, we release those who have wronged us and we forgive people who have sinned against us. We wish them well. And Lord, as we've released forgiveness, I thank you that we can receive forgiveness. Cleanse us, protect us, keep us, guard us, deliver us, liberate us from the curse. I thank you this day that we, your people, stand united under the blood of Christ. We can resist our enemy and he will flee. And Lord, at the cross, we trade our anxiety for peace, our fear for love, our sickness for wholeness. Let courage arise in the hearts of your people. And I thank you that you're quickening us and equipping us so that we can live a Christian life of holiness righteousness and unashamedly we can take the message of hope that you've given us and share it with others in Jesus name so I just want to encourage all of you if you need prayer for whatever reason the altar will be open Windsor Christian Fellowship you have been equipped now go